All right, folks, as you know, Human Events Daily is powered by Turning Point USA. So a couple of upcoming things at Turning Point USA to put on your radar screen. First up, the Young Women's Leadership Summit is coming June 2nd to the 4th, Dallas, Texas. If you want to come down, if you want to get your reservation, you go to tpusa.com slash YWLS. You go, you make your reservation now because this thing, about 3,000 tickets, it will sell out. It will be standing room only at one point. So make sure that you get your reservations in today. Dallas, Texas, June 2nd to 4th. I know June. It's coming. It's coming very fast. Next up, our latest debate night just dropped. Charlie Kirk facing off with Antifa founder of Strike Pack and a former professor, Rachel Bittacoffer. This is an informative, important debate. They talk about critical race theory in schools, the history of slavery, so many other things. You've got to check it out. And then finally, the TPOSA Socialism Sucks. New season just dropped. Season two, episode one just came out. It's all about COVID-19, everything that China doesn't want you to know about the Wuhan lab and Dr. Fauci's involvement with it. Go check it out. TPOSA Socialism Sucks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard today's edition of Human Events Daily, powered by Turning Point USA. Today's top stories, Judge Jackson responding to her leniency on child pornography cases. Next, the war in Ukraine, Day 27 update. We've got the report from the Ministry of Defense hot off the press. Third, U.S. sanctioning Chinese officials after demanding that Beijing condemn Russia. And finally, wheat prices are soaring amid the war in Ukraine, potential dust bowl conditions here in the United States. All this more ahead, Human Events Daily. As you said, the guideline was based originally on uh, a statutory scheme and on directives, specific directives by Congress at a time in which more serious child pornography offenders were identified based on the volume, based on the number of photographs that they received in the mail. And that made totally total sense before when we didn't have the internet, when we didn't have distribution. But the way that the guideline is now structured, based on that set of circumstances, is leading to extreme disparities in the system because it's so easy for people to get volumes of this kind of material now by computers. So it's not doing the work of differentiating who is a more serious offender in the way that it used to. So the commission has taken that into account and, and perhaps even more importantly, courts are adjusting their sentences in order to account for the changed circumstances. But it says nothing about the court's view of the seriousness of this offense. So that's the logic you're getting from our Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown Jackson. The logic you see is that when you use computers, the sentence is different or it should be different from when you use the mail and that the, the, those laws then should be reformed because they were written for a time when people were distributing child pornography with mail via mail rather than with computers. Okay. I can think of a couple of problems with this. In fact, I can think of a lot of problems with this. All right, number one, it's a simple separation of powers argument. You, Judge Jackson, are 
nominated to be a judge, a justice of the Supreme Court. That's the judicial branch. It is not your job to make new laws or pick and choose which laws you want to apply and which laws you think need to be reformed. That is a little something that we call legislation. That is the job of a legislator. Look, if you want to run for Congress, if you want to become a senator, if you want to have your say on the way that the laws in this country should be, you have every single right to, and I encourage you to do so, run for Congress, get elected, stand up, raise your hand, and be chosen as a representative of the people, and then rewrite the laws to your choosing. Get those through Congress, get them signed. We understand how this process works. The way the process isn't supposed to work is that an unelected judge sitting on the Supreme Court in a literal ivory tower decides what the law should be and then applies their decision based on their judicial philosophy, right, in any of these cases. That's called judicial activism. That's called legislating from the bench. And we don't need more of that. We need less of that. This is the difference between a conservative justice and a progressive justice. Because what she's trying to do here is apply critical theory to child pornography cases. Well, if it's easier now in the 21st century to send and uh, receive and distribute child pornography using the internet, then therefore because the ease of distribution is easier and more streamlined, then the sentence should actually be lighter. Yeah, that logic doesn't make any sense. You know what logic does make sense? that you're now able to abuse more children and that there are potentially more victims of these heinous acts, these disgusting acts, than there were before because of the ease of distribution that she just talked about it. She's not considering the victims in this. And I'm sorry, but I, I hear these comments that she's making and there's other comments where she says, look, I'm a mother and I, you know, I really think about these cases and it's very hard. No. No, you were thinking about social reform and you're trying to be a social reformer from the bench, not your job, literally not your role. Your job is to apply the law as it sees fit. And more importantly, you should be thinking in terms of the victims of these crimes. Every single one of these vi videos, photos, images, whatever's out there is an image of a child being abused sexually or exploited. That's the person that we need to think about. So when these lighter sentences come down, those people who were victimized now get to see that their victimizers are getting off lighter. We aren't talking about that. We're talking about locking them up, putting them in jail where they need to be. And anyone who commits these crimes or distributes this online, sets up websites that facilitates it, should all get the exact same harsh sentence because these are some of the most defenseless people in our entire society. And we should obviously go harsher on people who commit crimes against them, not lighter. Are you sick of giving money to companies that hate you and hate your family and hate your values, hate our values? I know that I am. So understand that we need to start supporting businesses that believe in this country and believe in your right to live as free American 
Patriots. And that is why Human Events Daily and myself, we are proud to partner with Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative cell phone provider, and we want you to as well. They offer broad nationwide coverage. In fact, they're using the exact same towers as the major carriers. So you get same great nationwide coverage, plus the peace of mind that your money is supporting your right to free speech. Now, what do I mean by that? Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget. They have a 100% U.S.-based customer support team with exceptional customer support. And most importantly, Patriot Mobile actually supports organizations. So your money is go, turns around to support organizations that fight for religious freedom, constitutional rights, sanctity of life, and our veteran and first responder heroes. So how do you sign up? You go to patriotmobile.com slash POSO. You use promo code POSO for free activation. Veterans and first responders, by the way, make sure you know because you can save even more. There's a special deal if you're a vet or a first responder. So support a company that loves America, loves you, shares your values. Patriotmobile.com slash POSO. Also, patriotmobile.com slash POSO. All right, we are now entering day 27 of Russia's war in Ukraine. The invasion continues. The fighting continues. The people who are being shelled, the families are still caught in the middle between these two warring sides. Uh, from the French Ministry of Defense, they put out their new report today. Not a lot has changed yesterday on the ground, but we'll break down what they have. So you're still seeing strong pressure on urban centers in the east and south maintained by intense bombardments. Of course, that is the Russian strategy. Mariupol. Mikolaev. Elsewhere, the situation tactically remains fixed. Let's go to the northern front in Kiev. The encirclement maneuver from the east and west was frozen overnight. The capital, of course, was the target of several bombardments. One area that was shelled was this formerly, uh, I guess, an abandoned shopping mall, which the Ukrainians were accusing them of attacking it as a civilian target. But the Russians put out photos showing that Ukrainian forces were actually using it as a center for many uh, their multiple rocket launcher systems and that they were using it for military systems in that underground parking garage there. Next up on the eastern front in Kharkov, the Russian forces continue to maneuver to encircle the city in parallel with numerous shellings. Diperno, probable convergence point of Russian forces from the south and east. Again, we've talked about the importance of Diperno and that city of Izium. This is the place where they attempt to make their envelopment of those Ukrainian forces, what's called the Army of the Donbass, that are far in the east. Next up, Mariupol. Fighting is continuing in the city center. Ukrainian forces have lost access to the Sea of Azov, but they refuse to capitulate. The health situation for the inhabitants and the combatants continues to deteriorate. On the southern front, we're seeing slow but steady advance of Russian forces towards the towns of Zaporizhzhia and Kriviri. Again, these are on the western bank of the Dnieper River. If they are able to take those, it will make their overall goal, their overall strategy of separating Ukraine right down the middle, partitioning it uh, from east and west all that much easier because they will not then be able to reinforce those positions to the east. And finally, Mikolaev, shelling and fighting are continuing as still intense fighting continues for the control of the city and its surroundings. Folks, what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine, a lot of this is fixed. Now, we're seeing these reports, and I see this every once in a while. People are saying, oh, there's, there's these counterattacks. You have to look for this. Look, we, we are looking for it. We're looking for the battle on the ground. But the bottom line is this. The territory shif shifts only seem to take place in one direction. You see the Russian forces aligned with separatists. You've also got the, the Chechen fighters that are there. Uh, they continue to gain ground. We're also seeing, by the way, in that area of Donbass, there are several breakouts um, in the areas of Duga um, Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics. 
if they are able to break out in those areas, to break through Ukrainian lines behind the Ukrainian army of the Donbass, then that army will be cut off. They will not be able to resupply. They will not be able to maneuver. They will not be able to break out. That means you're going to get either, you're going to lead either to a surrender scenario or a complete annihilation scenario because you will have something like you know, and it, and it ranges, I've seen as low, on the low end, 15,000 troops. I've seen from the high end, as many as potentially 25,000 groups in that war in the Donbass. Plus, you also have an additional issue there because once that fighting ends, once that development takes place, and if it does take place, then that means those combat forces on the Russian side and the separatist side will be freed up to take part in further combat operations in other parts of the country. So they'll be able to move that combat fighting capacity to other areas to push for further encirclements and push for further territorial gains. One thing I look at, and guys, you know, when I'm digging into this stuff, I'm up late every night. We're going on Telegram. We're going on uh, mainstream sources, anonymous Twitter, um, blue check Twitter. We are all over the place crunching and synthesizing so much data for people to consume so much of this information before we can get it to you and present it here. And of course, people know I, I do happen to have a little bit of a comparative advantage for some of this because I live with someone who's from the region and who is a direct linguist that can translate a lot of this stuff that's coming out in language. My wife is a linguist from that area, so she's able to translate a lot of this stuff for me. So when I see videos, when I see captions, subtitles, I say, hey, you know, does this make sense? Does this translation work? No, not obviously for every single thing that breaks out, but for something that is uh, rising to the level of something that we want to translate, something that we want to report to all of you, we're doing that work. I don't know of anybody else in media that's digging in that much on this. We're also looking very closely at whether or not Belarus is going to get involved. Now, I'd like to end this by playing a clip for you guys of Professor John Mearsheimer. Eight years ago, Professor Mearsheimer was the man that predicted that the West was leading Ukraine down the primrose path to a potential conflict with Russia. He directly called what was happening, and he explained how it was the United States that kept urging Ukraine to poke the bear. Here's Professor Mearsheimer responding to all of this today. And as you all know, if you take a stick and you poke a bear in the eye, that bear is probably not going to smile and laugh at what you're doing. That bear is probably going to fight back. And that's exactly what's happening here. And that bear is going to tear apart Ukraine. That bear is in the process of tearing apart Ukraine. And again, we go back to where we started. Who bears responsibility for this? Do the Russians bear responsibility for this? I don't think so. There's no question the Russians are doing the dirty work. I don't want to make light of that fact. But the question is, what caused the Russians to do this? And in my opinion, the answer is very simple. The United States of America. But the challenge posed by China is different. China is the only country with the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to seriously challenge the stable and open international system, all the rules, values, and relationships that make the world work the way we want it to. Our relationship with China will be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. The common denominator is the need to engage China from a position of strength that requires working with allies and partners, not denigrating them, because our combined weight is much harder for China to ignore. 
it requires engaging in diplomacy and in international organizations, because where we've pulled back, China has filled in. Well, there you hear Secretary of State Tony Blinken laying out new sanctions on CCP officials over the treatment of Uyghurs, the treatment of ethnic minorities in China. Now, people are going to say, Poso, this is something that, you know, you've been wanting for a long time. The sanction, it go, they're going directly after CCP officials. They're going directly after the people who actually, you know, are underwriting this entire invasion of Ukraine. Isn't this the smart move? Isn't this the thing that you should be doing? Allow me to explain how the Biden administration is completely botching their response to this. What they've now done, because remember, this isn't happening in a vacuum. They just went after the entire country of Russia, even Russian civilians, with sanctions on everything they could possibly think of, getting every U.S. company, every Western company to drop operations in Russia. Now they're threatening India, right? India, who's a massive trading partner with the United States, as well as a trading partner with Russia, threatening them with sanctions. You're also, of course, seeing them target China at the same time with sanctions. This is not happening in a vacuum. What we're now seeing is the United States lashing out at the entire world, and they're creating a multi-pronged, multi-front war economically, diplomatically, and socially with the rest of the world, right? This is like when you have a rabid, cornered animal that's just lashing out in every direction. This is a very, very bad policy for the United States because it seems completely reactive, and it clearly is completely reactive. There's no plan here, right? They're just in response mode. They have no strategy. They have no idea what they're doing. And what they are eventually going to achieve, by the way, because they're not thinking, as, how many times do we have to say that? They're not thinking beyond step one. They're not thinking about secondary effects, tertiary effects, second order, third order, fourth order, etc. Four years from now, five years from now, what are they doing? They're pushing Russia and China together. And mark my words, this will go down in history as being one of the great geopolitical blunders of the late stage American Republic. Because what they're doing is forcing the rest of the world out of the Western-backed U.S. dollar system. The Saudis, the Saudis are already making deals with China. They're saying, look, we're done with the U.S. dollar. We're going into the yuan. That petrodollar stuff, don't even worry about that. We're going to make deals with the yuan. And then China is turning around and saying, all right, yeah, sure, we'll do that. No problem. We'll take your money. We're more than happy to. That means the Saudis are going to be loading up on Chinese currency. Russia and India are already doing deals in currency swaps outside of the U.S. dollar, the rubles and rubies. All right. Understand, they're leaving the United States economically behind. This sets up a situation where, as President Biden called it, you might see a new world order. Yeah, you're going to see an alternative world order, a world order that doesn't have the United States as the backstop and doesn't have the U.S. dollar being strong. And once you lose that U.S. dollar, once you lose that as the world reserve currency, now suddenly you're going to devalue the dollar. You think you have inflation now? Wait until your entire bank account is worthless. And look, I talk about this stuff because it directly affects us. 
Why did the gas prices all go crazy here in the United States when we put sanctions on the other side of the world? Because it's all tied together, thanks to economic globalism. This is something that we've been talking about for years to try to get rid of, to try to bring home our own supply chains, to be able to be self-sufficient. And yet we haven't done that. So we are now at the mercy of the globalized system that we've created. Even before the conflict, developing countries were struggling to recover from the pandemic with record inflation, rising interest rates and looming debt burdens. Their ability to respond has been erased by exponential increases in the cost of financing. Now their breadbasket is being bombed. Russia and Ukraine represent more than half of the world's supply of sunflower oil and about 30% of the world's wheat. Ukraine alone provides more than half of the world's food programs with supply. Food, fuel, and fertilizer prices are skyrocketing. Supply chains are being disrupted. And the costs and delays of transportation of imported goods, when available, are at record levels. And all of this is eating the poorest, the hardest, and planting the seeds for political instability and unrest around the globe. So that's the UN Secretary General. Of course, we know Ukraine, Russia, this is the breadbasket of Europe. But what's happening to the breadbasket of the Midwest here in the United States? Zero Hedge has the article authored by Michael Snyder from themostimportantnews.com. Food prices in the United States are already soaring, and now we are on track for an absolutely horrible winter wheat harvest, severe drought, and dust bowl conditions threatened disastrous winter wheat harvest in the, U- in the U.S. Of course, this comes at a time when the war on the other side of the globe is growing to greatly reduce wheat exports to, from Russia and Ukraine. Over the last 12 months, the price of wheat has already risen 69%, and now this crisis threatens to go to an entirely new level. In all our years of writing, we've never seen anything like this and deeply concerned about the months coming ahead. So keep in mind that this is the planting season for winter wheat. You've got to plant it, then it goes throughout, or excuse me, you might see what's called a winter kill, right? I actually had somebody explain this to me the other day. Look, uh, you know, not an agriculture expert. So when I have issues with this, go to the ag guys. I say, what's going on? You know, what are we talking about? Why does this affect us now? Well, they say the winter, uh, the seeds are planted prior to winter. Then they, they winter out. Um, they're buried underground, and then eventually you start to get the um, the harvest, and you start to get, obviously, the wheat grows throughout the summer. But if you have a harsh winter followed by a drought, you might get what's called a winter kill. What does this mean for you? Food shortages, food prices going up. Understand, for you, for your family, look, we just spent the last segment talking about the threats to the U.S. currency. Now we're talking about the food supply, the same food supply, and not only so the bread, you got they're attacking the breadbasket of Europe, right? So don't expect to get any wheat out of Ukraine or Russia this year. Uh, that's number one. Number two, now the crop here in the United States is under threat because of these conditions, right? You are going to lead to food shortages. You're going to lead to massive issues with this. Now, look, if you're someone out there who says, look, I, you know, I don't eat wheat, I go keto, I do all this stuff, understand that you're now going to see pressures, though, on meat. You're going to see pressures on everything else because these food supply prices and these price issues are going to have a ripple effect throughout the entire food economy. This is a very bad situation. We are hurtling towards, we are hurtling towards 
food shortages here in the United States. We think we're putting sanctions on the rest of the world, but we're not even paying attention to what's going on within our own borders. And that is it for us today here Human Events Daily. Remember, our promise our oath, our solemn vow to you. Be good, be brief, be gone. And of course, your homework for us. Share this out with one of your normie friends and then leave us your five-star review. Seriously, it really helps us when you leave us those reviews. Today, what did we talk about? We got into Judge Jackson, her leniency on these child porn cases. We did the war in Ukraine day 27 update. The U.S. sanctioning CCP officials after demanding Beijing condemn Russia. They refused to do so. And then finally, we talked about the soaring wheat prices and the drought conditions here this winter, what effect that will have for you, what effect that will have on your family. Before we go, of course, as always, it's time for today's history break. Can you believe it's been three years, it was three years ago today, that special counsel Robert Mueller delivered his final conclusions in the Russiagate case showing that there was no collusion between President Trump and the state of Russia. It's been three years, and yet people still won't accept it. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you have my permission to lay ashore.